Hello, Lisa. Hello, Diana. Hello, Celeste. Hey. Hello, Rob. Hi. Welcome to Should We, a conversation with friends about the everyday choices that make us. This week, we made choices that affected us in the election. We're recording this the Sunday after the election, so we're going to talk about that. But first, I'd like to introduce Celeste and Rob, who are partners in a design studio called Math Times Joy. They specialize in strategy and identity, and they created our wonderful new identity that we love so much. So much. They have been a dream to work with, and also we just really are happy that working together gave us a chance to become friends, so we wanted to celebrate that friendship in the form of a podcast episode. We really feel like they know us now better than we know ourselves. Yes, big time, <laughs> big time. They're like, yeah, they, they see into our souls. So um, the first question we have today is related to part of the identity kit that Celeste and Rob created. They created a bunch of things for us. One of the things they created was a sticker pack. And the sticker pack contained a bunch of stickers. Nope, yes, should we? And then one sticker that said, now what? So here, this Sunday after the 2016 election, our question for you, Celeste and Rob, is mm-hmm. now what? Mm, wow. Move forward? Like, the decision has been made. I think we can argue it. I think we can push against it. But no matter what, it has to be forward in my mind. Like, people want to be like, oh, let's, this is how did we get here? What happened? It doesn't even matter. We can only go forward. So I, that's, that's my position on this right now. Yeah, I mean, I guess I kind of see it in a similar way, but maybe it's the sort of design stuff inside of me. I see it as, like, constraints, you know, an opportunity to kind of, like, look at how to react and kind of use that as an opportunity to kind of do things better, sort of refine the way that we think about things. Yeah, I mean, it's basically exposed a new problem. Yeah. And, like, how do we solve that problem now moving forward? And there's going to be a lot more problems, too. There's going to be a lot more problems. Uh, That seems (laughs) Uh, certain. And uh, I feel really embarrassed this week for my uh, willful obliviousness, I think. I realized that my entire voting adult life has been spent within the Obama administration. And uh, he is just so cool uh, that I got complacent. And I can admit that. So now I'm thinking about how to set up systems that... Uh, prevent complacency. Like, uh, I spent some time this morning setting up a bunch of recurring donations to organizations doing work for justice and equality because I just feel like it should come out of my paycheck every month. You know, like, I should notice it every month. I should remember that there are not just five, which is the number of organizations I decided to donate to today, but there are, like, hundreds of issues. And uh, five is the smallest number that feels proportionate to that infinite whole. I really like, uh, Rob, the way you describe this as a design problem with new constraints. And I feel like I'm I'm so aware of those now and also aware that um, I, I was being so quiet almost about the things I believe in kind of making myself small and invisible politically uh, without even realizing it. Like, I just really uh, have up to now filtered myself. I just never talked about politics. It's almost like a 
that that um, advice, like if you want to be polite, don't talk about religion and <laughs> politics at the dinner table or something. So I feel like now I want to really push against those res- constraints and uh, become more vocal about the things that I believe in and um, also my other now what is basically marinating in really empowering stories of women and minorities, people whose voices are not represented enough in our society and just steeping myself in stories that need to be told and then telling them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting way to look at it as well, you know, especially in the, in regards to stories. For a portion of the election, I think a lot of people were kind of focused on telling stories, but then somehow we got really distracted with, you know, the most exciting story, which was everything Donald Trump related. And I think that that sort of like, uh, you know, even in some cases, I think made people feel like they should be more quiet and listen, um, which I think is a healthy thing to do. But, you know, in, in instances where someone is getting a disproportionate sort of platform to kind of say whatever they want with no repercussions like Trump was, um, you sort of forget the people that should be telling the stories aren't getting their time. I feel like that's actually the most damaging part of this is that he was always in a position of hatred and bigotry and nobody wanted to call him on that. And it had been talked about a lot in these minority communities, in these places. So in some ways... I wasn't that surprised. I remember having conversations here constantly saying, it's going to be close. And people were like, no, I think it's going to be historic landslide. And I'm like, why? It has never been historic landslide. And no matter what, this hate and this bigotry and stuff exists. It was just in the shadows. And the biggest thing now is that he's basically emboldened these people. These people now feel comfortable with something that we've considered shameful. But if we put somebody in position of power and say, we're basically acknowledging that that behavior is fine. And I think that is, for me, the most damaging thing outside of even policies and whole other issues that are on the horizon. But you basically told a large part of America that well, that's it's not a problem. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, obviously, I think initially it, it's, it's going to be jarring. I think our sort of suspension of disbelief is going to be challenged in ways. Um, but at least now we know it it needs to be talked about. You know, it's like more visible. It becomes a constraint now, you know, that you realize that a large portion, arguably close to 50% of the people who were engaged by the election kind of show that they are more willing to protest vote than they are to kind of keep everybody, you know, supported and kind of in a, in a better light, you know. There's also something interesting about the the listening that you mentioned and I feel like we need to become really clear about what listening means. Listening doesn't mean being quiet. Active listening is about really quieting your mind, really hearing the other person, and then repeating back to them what you think they're saying in your own words. And I think that's a lot of what we can do now and what we're trying to do now where people are saying to, you know, friends and family who voted for Trump, like, this is what I feel like you're saying by choosing this person as the leader. I feel like you're saying that misogyny and and bigotry and xenophobia are okay. 
Right. You know, and that may not be what they said explicitly, but we have to listen and try to reflect what we see in each other and how it makes us feel. Yeah. One of the things that I read recently that I thought was pretty interesting was that a lot of these people maybe didn't have the intention of this hate or this bigotry or however they want to sort of separate themselves from it. But what I think they're not paying attention to is the impact. And Mm -hmm. the impact is much greater than the intent. And I think you have to just own up to that. So if you're going to vote for that position, you also need to own the fact that that impact has on other people. Well, I think there's some age-old tropes that people adhere to. I mean, much like my family, uh, you know, who's still in Michigan, I think a lot of people in similar situations that are like in blue-collar sort of working-class communities and maybe, you know, even if they weren't directly affected by the housing crisis or any of the other sort of economic things that are going on, it's really easy for them to kind of say that it can't be any worse, so at least we're going to shake it up by doing something different. You know, obviously those aren't generally the people with, you know, the most at stake. Yeah, they're voting for issues that don't affect them largely, in my opinion, especially because I have gone to Michigan, yeah, yeah, to Charlevoix. They're not suffering from this, like, Muslim terrorist attack, and they're not, like, seeing even people of color on a regular basis. So to vote so heavily against those things makes zero sense in my mind. It's like, if I'm in a city, if anything, I should have that position because I'm surrounded by these people all the time. But that's, I think, the biggest disconnect is, like, We need to be able to communicate with those people, but at the same time, they need to also be open and explore and come out of where they're at as well and see more things, experience more people. And it's not going to be easy. I don't know how we do that, but there's this really isolated... They don't have these experiences. A lot of these people don't meet gay people. They haven't seen a a black person in years. Like, So how do we let them know that these people are fine, these people are okay, these people are just people? It's it's sort of a caricature of these people, you know? I think the media, obviously, is at fault of that. And I think there's an interesting sort of metaphor to the way that social media works. It's a platform that lets people say things, but it doesn't, you know, sort of enforce the listening and the responding to what's going on very much. It's a one-way communication stream more times than not. What I haven't been able to get out of my head this week is the idea that proximity is powerful and it's a failure of proximity that is contributing to these divides. And we all live in San Francisco. I feel very far away from the state of mind or the communities where voting for Trump seemed obvious. But The proximity that does feel within reach is, you know, Facebook, lots of talk about filter bubbles. But if you're in an extended family together, you favorite each other's kid photos, you wish each other a happy birthday, those affinity algorithms know you're related. Mm -hmm. And so for people who are in families where not everybody wants a more progressive world more than anything else, telling a story in a way that will reach them because of those affinity algorithms and not saying you were wrong, although it's fair to say that too, but saying this is my reality, as Lisa spoke about, I think that can be a small act. I would say that I don't necessarily feel so far away. I guess I just want to acknowledge that I grew up in Pennsylvania in a really small town in the Rust Belt, and my dad worked in manufacturing and until he lost his job. And I can empathize with a certain kind of desperation and hopelessness and economic suffering. But I, I think, yeah, what we've been describing is 
putting that above these these other issues, um, it's it's scary. I don't even know if it's about putting it above as much as that some people are willing to, it's almost like the bully. You're willing to like put hate in one direction to then lift up an idea when really we don't need to put any hate towards any person to then still build up that community and still do these things. So it's it's just becoming a thing where it's now pinning it on these weird ideas, people race, sex, when really that, none of that is the issue. Mm-hmm. The issue is that some policy in some place made people lose a job here. Mm-hmm. A bigger question is this global versus being local. Like I think we're increasingly becoming a more global world, but globally people are also still like trying to shut down things that happen at Brexit here. And I think we're going to face this a lot. Like how global do we want to be? And I think that's even sort of a question that's really what this is sort of about. So I've heard a lot of people this week describe their response to the election as the stages of grief. Uh, I don't know if that resonates or not, but if you had to pick a stage of grief or a response that you're in right now, how would you describe it? I don't know. I kind of see it as motivation. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I really felt grief. I guess I felt more just like concern because obviously I guess I should state that I am biracial. My parents are both immigrants. So I am an American through and through, but nobody in my extended family is. Um, so they all came to this country for an opportunity. My dad went served in the military, and we grew up in this small pocket in Colorado Springs, which is incredibly conservative and also religious. But being that it's military influence, I grew up in this pocket that everyone was like me. Everyone's brown, everyone's biracial, everyone has a family member from another country. So in a weird way... I can understand what can happen because I've experienced on a small scale some of these microaggressions, I guess. But in a a lot of ways, I feel completely separate because my dad's point of view on race is completely different. My dad grew up in a country where racism wasn't an issue. Everyone was black. He was like, white people came here and gave us candy. And we had always thought that was funny and weird. (laughs) So there's like different, I have a different thing. Like I've always thought I could achieve what I wanted to do. And I've always pursued that. And I've always managed to live in places where I didn't feel a lot of that hate and change. So it's really interesting. But at the same time, I can see, I know what it feels like to be uncomfortable in situations and not feeling totally accepted in a place. I mean, I think it makes sense. I mean, the story you were telling about how, you know, white people and tourists would come to the island and give them candy. And they're like... (laughs) That's his lens. And yeah. in, a, in a way, like, not that it belittles things, but it kind of makes it a little bit more palpable and kind of easy to communicate um, that distinction, you know, without it being so divisive. Right. And he understands race because he obviously came to New-, to New York and he understands the stigma there. But he was never raised with this idea that he couldn't achieve what he needs to achieve. Mm-hmm. And I think he always instilled that in us, this independence, this idea of being able to accomplish what we want. But I think that is definitely more unique than someone whose parents grew up in the South, that that's a black family that has a long history here. And then I have my mother, who's German, also white, and she is also equally as like, you can do what you want. So it's just an interesting. So I have even slightly different and I'm biracial, (laughs) which means that I am neither black nor white. So I'm like my own complete race. (laughs) You know, from a historic perspective, I think that's kind of what the American dream sort of represented. It was this sort of motivational factor for people who maybe came from something less. And it was, you know, just something that drove people in a certain direction and essentially distracted them from what they lacked, but more or less, you know, focused on what they could get. And I think we kind of, in a way, need more of that. Yeah. 
I mean, I've experienced a lot of these small towns, these communities, just because of where I've lived as well. But I would say Rob's family specifically, it's just, for me, it was such a unique sort of experience because it is very, like, a 3,000-person town, very labor-focused, very... So every time I go there, it's really interesting. I know his family well. I know their intentions. But often they say things that are just make me incredibly uncomfortable. Oh, yeah, they're 15 years easily <laughs> in the past. When I met his father, I think the first time, I think he used the word colored and thought that was the most appropriate thing to say, genuinely. And then, like we talked about earlier, we listen to each other, we talk to each other. I'm like, dude, it's just black now. It's fine. <laughs> like, we can move forward. And then, like, now when I see him, he says... We're still getting over the thing that you don't need to identify a person by their race in general. Like, you don't need to be like, I went downtown and met a nice black guy. Like, not, we don't need to say black guy. You could just say guy. But uh, <laughs> they are making big strides. But a part of that is because where they live, they don't have these conversations. So it's like, I can't hold that against them. I know they're not trying to be racist or anything like that. But it's just taking the time to explain those things to them so that they understand and we can have a conversation about it and move forward. And they love me and I love them. Okay, so so in summary, now what? We should have conversations. We should love each other. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we should really encounter people who are different from ourselves and consider the constraints and opportunities of our new design problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, here's a question for you. Should we go independent? Oh, the two of you guys? Yes! <laughs> uh, well, by we, we mean you. <laughs> and Generally. Yeah. I know, but you know what I'm saying. I'm kind of the person that sort of thinks that if you have the inkling that you should, then yes, you probably should just do it. I mean, I agree. I think, I think it's about trying, though, you know? Yeah. And I think, it, you know, when you can afford yourself an opportunity to do something for yourself or at least build towards something, I think you should. Would you tell us a little bit about your path to being independent and creating Math Times Joy? Rob never worked for the man. (laughs) 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 Or, like, the shortest stints ever. And um, I guess we have worked at a lot of places. I, like I mentioned, grew up in Colorado. We both met there. I worked for a bunch of studios of all kinds. Kept getting experience that way, and Rob, I felt like, was having all the bad experiences. So early on, he was like, I'm done with this. At one point, Rob was just going to kill me if I would have gotten another job, and I think it was just about time that we probably just do this thing together. Yeah, I mean, I think for (laughs) a little bit more context, like, it was a a good, I don't know, eight-year process or something, at least from when we met in college. You know, I think everyone in college kind of imagines the the most fantastical version of their future. You know, like, I'm going to start a studio, or I'm going to start a magazine, or whatever. And then you get out of college, and then you realize the challenges that are associated with that. And then, obviously, you look for support, so you want to get a job or an internship. I don't know. I feel like because I had a pretty good idea of where I wanted to end up, that those things didn't lend themselves to me eventually starting a studio. So it was always kind of met with sort of friction or misdirection. Where did you want to end up? Just starting a studio. I wanted to work for myself, yeah. Pretty much forever. Yeah, I don't even know I went to college, but... (laughs) <laughs> I mean, yeah, really design Meet people, shake is... hands I mean, yeah, you're you're also sort of afforded a really unique experience Or a sort of roadmap, if, if you will, as a designer Just because I think there are so many different ways you can apply it And there aren't a lot of sort of restrictions in opening your own studio Like I think 
It's more or less just about shaking hands and being decent at what you do. And if you can kind of keep it up, it eventually finds a way of being fruitful. Yeah. And I think my journey was basically going to these places and keep going to like, oh, but this one focuses on this part. This one focuses on. So finding if there was one that I liked, but I realized quickly that really they're all kind of the same with their focuses. It was sort of the same problems every time. So really, it's like, I can do this. I've done this at all these places. Everywhere I go, everyone's faking it till they make it. You're constantly trying to figure things out and really that's the reality of every place I'd go and I'm like I can just do this like we can do this (laughs) if this is what I'm getting and then I can have my own schedule which is sort of a lie and then I can do whatever I want (laughs) (laughs) how do you feel about how long it took the eight years do you wish you'd done it sooner or do you feel like it took as long as it needed to take I think that you know regardless of whether it was a short push or, or the eight years that it took. I think all of those things informed the way that we approach it. I mean, there's a possibility we would be doing something entirely different if we started quicker. But again, you know, I think Celeste kind of went through her journey and I went through mine. And I think those things probably reinforced us working to get together in the way that we do more than just kind of jumping right in and, and sort of pretending we knew what we were doing too. Well, and I think you just gain a whole lot. Like I learned a lot from different people. And then I think the biggest benefit was just the network that I was able to build because working at all these different places. Access. Yeah, I just know so many people and it just helps, you know, here in San Francisco, you get your little community. And I think knowing all these people, seeing where they go, the path they take, and then you all can come together. Whereas if I never worked at any of these places, maybe we'd still be in the position or maybe even in a better position, but it would be different. I don't know how we would have formed it. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I sort of muttered, but access, I think, you know, if you get the job at the big place with a big salary and everyone else is kind of in a similar sort of state of their career, that they leave, you eventually leave, and then that turns into a bigger community with additional access. You know, I guess even kind of going back to should we be independent or go independent, I think starting there ends up being more, it's more groundwork, you know? Mm. So I think you have to find a way in. I think that's definitely right, but I wonder if there's ways to find ways in even without that. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just meeting people. There is. I mean, a lot of those relationships come from friendships. Your friend relationships. Yeah. Friendships. No networking. Make friends. Seriously, (laughs) yes. Uh, This leads to another question of ours, which is, should we work with our romantic partners? That was (laughs) my... I mean, yeah, why not? I would assume, so this is always my assumption, but it's like if you're with somebody for life, assuming we all want to hold to the marriage, um, the golden rule of marriage, I would assume that you probably get along fairly well and you have a lot of things and maybe even complement each other. So in theory, that could make for a great business relationship as long as you have good communication. So, and I think that's just a good Thing for any relationship, marriage, friend, or otherwise. So you, I think it's really founded in being open, being critical of one another, and being okay with that. And also realizing there's balance, right? Like, me and Rob work at work during work hours. Like, it's like trying to figure out where and when can we talk about things. And it's not always easy, but... Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, other friends that we've known that have run studios or been in similar sort of um, situations... Um, you know, I think they don't know where to draw the line. They, it kind of gets confused, you know, in in the sense of, like, are we husband and wife right now or are we business partners right now? And I think there's an efficiency to be able to, in, in sort of balancing both of those, but, you know, you still need to have both of those relationships kind of separate. 
Do you have any rituals about making that transition on a day-to-day basis? I don't even know what to picture, but uh, how Other do you do it? Other than whiskey? <laughs> no. Um, I mean, I think leaving the office... In a weird way, I think for Celeste and myself, like she usually leaves a little earlier and goes shopping and or starts cooking. So I kind of like, you know, transitions her into home time. Yeah, I think our biggest challenge is probably schedules. Like I'm my most productive in the morning. I wake up at like five or six in the morning and this is, happens without an alarm clock. I'm just up and I'm like, I'm going for a swim. I eat my breakfast, like whatever. But I'm like ready to work before lunch. I'm trying to like answer emails or make a decision about something, because basically by the time three or four comes around, I'm done. And it's not like I'm saying done mentally, like I still got to work, but sometimes that's it's hard for me after three or four, whereas I think that's when Rob starts to get super productive. He can stay real, real late in the night, and I think there's a big disconnect there because he'll come in the morning and may not be ready to have a conversation. So that's the biggest thing I think that we're trying to figure out what our process is. Again, I think that, that ends up being the constraint, but... The way that I see it, taking advantage of that constraint and saying, like, you know, almost working in two time zones. She starts way earlier, and her day is almost done by the time I'm really going. So it kind of gives us the opportunity to do sort of twice as much. It reminds me of couples in the same career, let's say doctor, who actually just share a job. Like, Mm. they have uh, jobs where they're just making one salary, and then they flexibly be the doctor. Like, one of them is the doctor at all the times that somebody needs to be the doctor, but it lets them negotiate with each other about how to fulfill on that, which I think is really cool. I also think it's probably about defining roles, too, like trusting whoever your partner is and making clear separation about who's doing what. And I think sometimes people, both people want to do everything together, and really that just can't happen. You have to be able to delegate those things and be like, you're just good at this. Just own it. Take it. I don't ever need to touch it or see it again. It's fine. Granted, I can dip in and out if needed, but I think having those real clear... I mean, I guess that's true for any job, knowing what you're here for, what you're good at, and how to move forward. And I think sometimes that can be hard or muddy with a relationship that you're close with. I think another word of advice, if you want to call it <laughs> that, is just try before anyone is watching first. <laughs> that's know, a like, good one. Sort of like warm up to the idea of kind of overlapping those roles before anyone has their eyes on you. How did you do that? When we moved to San Francisco, even, we were both freelancing. I think Celeste mm-hmm. uh, was maybe almost eight months with me sitting in our studio apartment, you know, elbow to elbow, staring at our tiny screens. And, you know, in in other instances, I mean, again, when we were younger and just coming out of college, there was a lot of, like, staying up late and, like, trying to break the rules and trying to, like, sort of self-initiate an independent career. Versus now, even, like, our studio is sort of a shared space. We have friends that work in there with us. So they see us having conversations that didn't get started in the office that maybe have been happening at home or whatever. Um, and not that it's necessarily a personal conversation, it's just they don't have the context, so they see it go from zero to 40 in, like, <laughs> no time at all. <laughs> well, and I think some people probably get more sensitive. Like, we can talk pretty openly and freely amongst each other, and I think sometimes people might view that as negative or, you know, like, you don't really know the dynamics of a person's relationship, and that's only more powerful if you're in business together and people are watching you. So it's like, it's always like, oh, Rob, don't get too loud. Maybe because, like, we don't want everyone else to feel uncomfortable because we're having a conversation. Or or if they just don't, it doesn't look like we're doing anything because we're just looking at vacation places. <laughs> oh, or, yeah, or that. We're not doing how anything. How do these guys make any money? They keep <laughs> talking about travel or, like, <laughs> You just sound like you're concerned about them. I don't care about them. Whatever. Uh, 
No, but I think they're impressions. You know, I mean, Hillary said it best. You must have a private life and a public life. <laughs> <laughs> or opinion, I think she said. Um, Diana, I feel like as I'm hearing you two describe this relationship, there are so many parallels for us, don't you think? Oh, yeah, big time. It's very funny because I didn't expect that this question was going to be so relevant to us. I was thinking, oh, would I start a business with my spouse, you know, trying to make a connection. And then I was like, wait a second. We started a whole thing as friends first. And there are a lot of things we do that are similar. Like there are some things that I tend to do and some things that you tend to do. So some a lot of the time we'll divide and conquer. And then we'll find like the most fun things to do together. (laughs) (laughs) There's actually a spreadsheet that had all of the Kickstarter backer awards we needed to fulfill. And it has a column for like more fun together, (laughs) dramatically more fun together with like conditional formatting on it or something. Yeah. 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 And then the other thing about kind of dividing the like personal and work is I think our Slack channels help us do that. So we have a lot of Slack channels because we have a lot of things to talk about, but some of them are very clearly like project planning and others are life. Yeah, I think we're over 50 now. We're always creating new ones. And basically we're treating Slack like a way to have a bunch of different email threads that we decide are probably indefinite from the start. So instead of labeling a thread this Sunday at the bridal boutique, which is a current topic of interest for us because of my upcoming wedding, it'll be like the the channel's named Wedding and then just everything wedding related Mm. goes in there. Um, But we have so many of those and it just helps to acknowledge this relationship is indefinite, but uh, it helps to group related things together to create some possibility of separation. I have a question for you guys. Mm-hmm. Should we have men on our show? <laughs> because the context for this question is that, Rob, you're the first man on our show. Well, all of season one was just us. And then we've recorded about eight episodes for season two. And you're our first guy. So how do you feel about that? And what do you think, both of you? Well, thanks for having me. Um, I was going to say he's probably very happy about that because he likes to be in the company of women over men any day. I do. <laughs> and not even in a in a sexual, I'm a guy that should be hanging out with girl way. Like, Rob definitely prefers women over men. I like their brains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't see why there isn't a reason to. I mean, I, again, I think varied perspectives are always nice. I could think of a, of a lot of ways to think about it that seem obvious just in the sense of giving people a chance or something, but... There's a lot of dudes that have a chance, though, on podcasts. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess the, the actual answer would be, like, I don't know that there is a right answer. You know, I think it's kind of whatever you want to do, and that's Whenever good enough. it feels natural. Yeah. It's been really present for us this week because we had this whole plan about being kind of mischievous with the season where we would only interview cool women in our lives um, or non-binary people, and then... You know, if anyone noticed, we'd be like, whatever. They're just the best people we could find. Like, we didn't even notice, Uh, which is absolutely not true. It's been super intentional. But it is a response we hear so often in 
unequal environments and conversations where it's like, hey, you know, have you noticed there are no women in the room mm. um, for whatever it is, the, the podcast you're making or the decision-making meetings you're having at work or there are no people of color or just everyone in the room or everyone in this conversation looks the same. And so often I've heard a response that's like, you know, well, but, you know, we just look for the most qualified people or we just have a high bar and that's how it turns out. Or, you know, these are just pe- my friends or whatever. Yeah. I'm just picking people are great. And in sort of a sarcastic way, I wanted that moment to come for us where we could be like a hundred episodes in and somebody's <laughs> like, how come you don't have any men on your show? And I'd be like, oh, I didn't even notice. <laughs> <laughs> but my uh, my conclusion from this week is that I have to be as political as I am. You know, if I'm doing something on purpose, I should talk about doing it on purpose because almost everything I do is on purpose. And the things I don't do on purpose, I'd prefer to be called out on. So I think that uh, that's been really present for me and you know, you, uh, Rob, were speaking about giving people a chance, and it was really interesting in running our Kickstarter project. We finally found out who'd been listening to the podcast up to that point back in May, June. And the Kickstarter backer set was pretty much 50% men. And that wasn't like just to support us as people. A lot of them listen to it. And mm-hmm. I think that's awesome that people are listening to perspectives different from theirs because they're different and because different is interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think what I've concluded now is like, I, I want to have conversations with men. I want to <laughs> have diverse conversations on this show. And I'm also just really proud of all the women that we've interviewed so far. They're so cool. I can't wait to watch the season. Well, I feel like we could talk forever, uh, but I want to do a few things because we can't talk forever. Uh, One of the things is to tell people that we loved working with you, and if they would like to work with you, the best way to get in touch is to go to mathtimesjoy.com, all spelled out, and write to them, get it started. I was so pleased and moved by our initial conversations where we learned from you that you love working with projects in the beginning, you know, the chance to define a strategic identity while a project's still small and then potentially see it go big and be a part of helping it go big is one of your specialties. And so I would encourage everybody to not imagine their project is too small and just start that conversation because who knows where it'll go. Yeah, and I think that's always the biggest detriment. People are always so worried about my project being too small or not having money or whatever. And I think that's true for design and beyond design. And really, you just have to try it. You have to talk to people. And I think you'll be surprised at how many things open up around that. Even with your guys' podcast, like developing this and finding the place to record and like all these things that probably seemed at some point impossible. Totally. It's just about having conversation, I guess, like you said, so nicely. We do love seeing things come to fruition and we like to help people beyond just design, like help them get to a place that they want to be in really at the end of the day like design isn't even really that important in my mind sometimes yeah i mean i think it's about a conversation and getting people comfortable with sort of exploring the potential and what was so cool for me among many cool things was to see how much you cared about 
getting this into the world. And I think that being able to externalize that care and have you sort of embody it and remind us of it made the whole thing feel a lot more real and a lot more important. And that was as valuable as any of the amazing colors and topography and design guidelines you came up with. Also, I have to confess that when we started, I wasn't really sure what it was going to mean to start from a really strategic place. I mean, I was so much uh, torn between sometimes thinking of should we as a side project and sometimes thinking of should we as an empire. (laughs) 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 And I didn't, it was so confusing. (laughs) I think we were both like that, right? And then meeting the two of you and talking with you for the first time and then every time after really helped us shape Uh, First of all, dream big and go ahead and say what were all the things we hope to accomplish one day. And then to come back to where we are now and be, on the one hand, like very practical, very realistic, really working within our constraints. And then on the other hand, creating a foundation that's so flexible, that can grow with us, that just, I think, gives us such a sense of possibility. Um, I'm really grateful for that. I'm happy to hear that. That makes me very happy. <laughs> it does. Yeah, I mean, we enjoyed the process as well. So, I mean, it's it's always nice to kind of have that reciprocated. Yeah, and I just love that you can see that. Like, the, the whole point is that we've sort of solidified an idea. It's not permanent. It's not fixed. But in the future, you have something that you're at least shooting towards. And now you know where that is, or at least how to get there to some degree. And I think that influences everything. It influences how you talk about your podcast. Maybe there's certain things now that you do in each episode, but it's all driven by the same idea. Mm-hmm. We're now at a place truly where one of the reasons to build an empire is to come up with more excuses to work with you. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. And I really feel like we came to you honestly just with a need for a new avatar. It was like, look, we just need cover art, but like, we have such dreams. <laughs> we really surface them. Yeah, we really ha- we struggle with just doing an avatar. Yeah. <laughs> Rob, Rob especially. Yeah, I like to see it all <laughs> happen at once unfold. So thank you from both of us, and we also have some other people to thank. Normally we thank you in the credits, but you're here, so we can thank you in person. <laughs> thank you to Math Times Joy for our wonderful new identity, MathTimesJoy.com, all spelled out. And thank you to all of our Kickstarter backers who made it possible for us to work with Math Times Joy and um, also create this new season. Thank you to the band Canada for our theme song, Hey Garland. And thank you to Yosh at Faultline Studios for our recording space and for producing this episode. Should you tune in next time, we'll leave it to you. <laughs> <laughs>